6, verses 52 to 70. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he, will, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fa- that, not, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense at this?" Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Yet he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your timely word, your relevant word, your eternal word. And we pray, God, that as we hear your word, that we don't reject it. That we accept it, we digest it, and we live it in Christ's precious name. So I'd like to read a quote to you from an unknown author, which relates to our message tonight. And this is the quote. Noah preached to the old world for a hundred years, but only eight souls were saved. Lot preached to the cities of the plain, but only three souls were chosen from them. 600,000 men, besides women and children, passed through the Red Sea, but only two entered the Promised Land. Gideon went to fight the Midianites, with 32,000 men, but only 300 were allowed to participate in the victory. Many are called, but few are chosen. And tonight, I want you to be challenged. When you see many rejecting the gospel, you need to realize God is sovereign, even over their resistance to the gospel, and also sovereign in his choosing those he will draw to his son for salvation. And there's three things I'd like you to see in this text tonight that are all part of, part of God's sovereign plan in salvation. The first one is, you must consume his flesh and blood. That's the first point. The 
Second one is, do you accept what Christ says? And the third point is, are you a true disciple? And the last time I spoke on the Gospel of John, I finished up at chapter 6, verse 51. However, it is imperative that I give you the synopsis of the first 51 verses so you will understand why Jesus spoke about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in this section we will look at tonight. John's Gospel, as I said the, the last three times, it centers around seven signs. These seven signs Jesus did point to the reality of who he was. God in human flesh. The sixth chapter begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000, which translate actually into 15 to 20,000, or maybe even more, if you include women and children. And this was the fourth sign he performed. And I believe, I believe Jesus did this miracle for a few reasons. One, he had compassion on the crowd. Two, he wanted to instruct his disciples. And three, which is very important, to lay a foundation for his discourse on the bread of life to feed famished souls. It wasn't just about Jesus giving people bread. He, yes, he was concerned. As I said, he had compassion on the crowd. But he had a much, much, much more important thing to relate to the people, and that was to feed their famished souls. However, the fickle crowd missed the point of it. They thought Jesus was a Messiah who would meet their physical needs. As you read through the chapter, you can't help but see that. They saw Jesus... One who gives bread, but not as the bread of life. They didn't see him as the bread of life, but one that would meet their physical needs. And they wanted to make Jesus king. And by the way, Jesus, while you're meeting our physical needs, why don't you free us from the Roman oppression we've been under for the last 95 years or so? So basically, they wanted Jesus to be their genie. After experiencing the miracle, they should have fell at his feet worshipped him, repented of their sins, and cried out for mercy. But they missed the point, as many, many do today. Then knowing the crowd was about to force him to be their king, and not wanting his disciples to get swept away with the crowd, because they could have got swept away with the crowd just as much as the crowd uh, misunderstood, they could have misunderstood. Jesus sends him across the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to Capernaum, and on their way they're met by this powerful storm. And fear grips their hearts, especially when they see Jesus walking on the water, whom they think is a ghost. Jesus reveals who he is, takes them into the boat, the storm subsides, and they immediately, immediately reach the other side. The disciples absolutely learn some powerful lessons. It's really not the bread that I fed you with. It's really, you need to trust me, and I'm the bread of life. I am the creator. I am the one who still stills the storm. So they learned some powerful lessons that night. And then when they get to the other side in Capernaum, the crowds seeking Jesus meets him there. And it was here, Jesus gives this beautiful discourse on the bread of life and, set, and sets the record straight that he is the true bread that comes from heaven and anyone who comes to him will have eternal life. However, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him to the Son. And then Jesus continues his discourse about himself, the bread of life, and equates this bread to his flesh and says in verse 51, this is where I left off the last time, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Here Jesus begins his discourse, eating his flesh and blood. And the first applicable point we see is, you must consume his flesh and blood. Again, in verse 51, he's telling his disciples, the only way to have eternal life is to eat his flesh. But again, there's a lack of misunderstanding. A veil covers their minds and hearts, as do many today. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, the 4th chapter, 3rd and 4th verse, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this, the disciples' lack of understanding, manifested in their arguing with one another. The Jews, in verse 52, says, it says, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can man, this man give us his flesh to eat? And the Greek word for dispute is makamai, which indicates this was a heated, heated dispute. They were arguing. They were in disagreement. What does he mean by that? Some thought he meant cannibalism. But he obviously wasn't speaking of, about cannibalism. Jesus frequently used physical objects to teach spiritual realities. All you have to do is read his parables. And you could see all these earthly uh, symbols he used to talk about spiritual realities. And in this case, to eat Jesus' flesh has a spiritual meaning. And this is what he meant by it. It's meaning of trusting or believing in him, especially in his death for our sins. So he didn't mean physically eating his flesh. But not only eating his flesh, but he also said drinking his blood. Let's go through verses 53 to 58. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So now it would be ludicrous to think Jesus was speaking literally uh, about drinking the blood fluid that flowed through his veins, and just as it would be equally ludicrous to think about eating his flesh. These are metaphors that Jesus, that, that Jesus spoke about, about believing and accepting Christ's sacrificial death. Augustine said this, and I like this. He says, believe and you have eaten. And there are four promises Jesus made concerning eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Believing. The first is a negative. He says, if you don't, you don't have life in you. 1 John 5.12 says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's very simple. You have the Son, you have life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. The second, Jesus puts the same truth in a positive vein. He says, if you do eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? It's more than just, it's got to mean more than just living forever. It really means to participate in the very life of Christ through their union with him. When Jesus was praying in the garden, 
just before his crucifixion in John 17, 3, he said, and this is eternal life, that they know, underline that word know, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. The Greek word for know is gnosko, implies, and, and it applies more than an intellectual knowledge. It's a deep, intimate love relationship. It's actually experiential love. Uh, a lot of times when they use that word know in, 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 in the Old Testament, and sometimes in the New, it has the idea of, of a husband and wife, the intimacy, sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. But over here it means it is a close, deep, intimate relationship. And the third is all who eat and drink, Christ will raise up, raise up on the last day. This is a guarantee of your salvation, that whoever belongs to Christ will be raised up on the last day. This speaks of the resurrection of our bodies and the fullness of our salvation. And the fourth promise is all who eat and drink abides in Christ and Christ in him. Whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood, invite, ins Jesus insists that he will abide in him and he in Christ. Me meaning that he will remain with you. In John 14.20, Jesus said, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Now, this does not mean equality. It doesn't mean we become gods. It just means it's the closest possible relationship between Jesus and his followers. Without a hint of equality. They will abide with you, and you with them. I must make mention of the Roman Catholic Church. They, they use this passage of scripture as a proof text of their doctrine of transubstantiation. That the elements used in the mass, the wine and the wafer, become the actual body and blood of Christ. And we along here at Sonship, along with the overwhelming majority of evangelical Christians, do not adhere to this preposterous teaching of the Catholic Church. That it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. It's not only unbiblical, it's also contrary to sound reason. Even if it did represent the sacrifice, the sacrament I should say, if Jesus was talking about the Lord's Supper, many interpreters, many interpreters do believe that, um, but they do not believe, and it could not mean that his actual body and blood, for numerous reasons, and too numerous to talk about now. However, I don't believe John is speaking about communion here. Anyway, feeding on Christ is possible because it is the Father who sent the Son. This was his mission. Jesus reminds us in verse 57 and verse, in verse 58 that he never worked independently of his Father. And we see this throughout the sixth chapter. And the Apostle John would not allow his readers to forget that Jesus had a mission. And he was a divine missionary. The living Son was sent by the living Father to a lost and dead world to make dead sinners have life as the Father and Son have life in themselves. Only someone living spiritually, and, and it has to be God alone, can make a human being alive spiritually. Only God can do that. Unlike the Israelites who ate manna in the desert and still died, those who feed on Christ will have life of God, have the life of God in them. By the way, the Greek verb for feed, trogo, is in the present tense and carries the idea of continually, 
of continuing to feed on Christ. If you remember when I spoke about Jesus, the bread of life, I said, if you're a Christian, Jesus is not what? Not part of your life. He's, he's your whole life. That's right. He's your whole life. He's not just, there's no such thing as Jesus is just a little part of my life. He's your whole life. And he can't be your whole life if you're not continually feeding on him. Verse 59 says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Jesus invitation to feed on him is as relevant and clear today as it was when he spoke this in the town of Capernaum. Are you consuming Christ? Are you feeding upon Christ on a regular basis? Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Are you seeking fellowship? Is this, does this consume you? Are you believing and trusting in him regularly? Moment by moment. Next section, verses 60 through 65. Christ's words are hard words, which brings us to the second applicable point. You accept what Jesus says. You accept what Jesus says. Are you eating his flesh and drinking his blood? And do you accept what he says? Many times you'll hear people say, I believe in Jesus, or I believe the Bible. However, as soon as you tell them something that's from the Bible and it goes against what they were taught, what they were indoctrinated with, or, or it goes against the lust of their flesh, they quickly come up with some excuse why they don't accept it. And I've come across many people like that. In recent days, a conference took place in California at Grace Community Church spearheaded by Dr. John MacArthur called Strange Fire. To say the least, this, con this, this conference raised the eyebrow of every charismatic leader and layperson. And much of the conference focused on the charismatic movement and some of the false teaching that it has produced. It, it exposed the false prophets, the prophecies, signs and wonders, etc. And I spoke with some good, solid Christians who were appalled at Dr. MacArthur and the, and the whole conference. They were appalled at it. And my response to them was this. Have you listened to the sessions of the conference? And can you show me from God's word where MacArthur or any of the speakers are biblically incorrect? Not one verse, but can you make a case against it? If you can't, and the conference did uphold the integrity of scripture and you still reject it, then you're not accepting the word of God. And that's what it comes down to. I don't mind when a person wants to disagree with me or something that I'm teaching, but make your case with the word of God. Don't tell me what you've been indoctrinated with. Don't tell me about this or that or your emotions. And I've been there, so I can say this. Tell me, build your case always with the word of God. Because if God's word is not saying it, then God's not saying it. Do you accept and believe the words of God? When the word of God goes against every nerve ending in your body, do you still believe and obey it? Amen. That's right. That's right. This is nothing new. The Old Testament prophets dealt with the people rejecting God's word. And Christ and the apostles dealt with the same thing. And we deal with the same thing today. And you're going to see something. Christ fed 5,000 people. I'm going a little ahead of myself. 
He, spelled, he, 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 he fed 5,000 people. He preached the word to them. They didn't like the word he was preaching. Guess what? The crowd dwindled down. And I say 5,000. It was really more like 20,000. If you include women and children. And at the end of chapter 6. Read chapter 6. Go through the whole thing. And at the end of chapter 6. You know who he was addressing? 11 disciples. 12 disciples. Now there may have been more there. We don't know but. He came and he addressed the 12. I don't get upset now. If our church is 5,000 people. I mean it is what it is. People want to hear the truth. We're here to. To. Exalt Christ and his word the best we can. It's not about big churches. It's about feeding the people of God the true right interpretation of God's Amen. word. And I don't say that as a boastful thing or a proud thing. I just say that that's my conviction. There's a lot of temptations that we as leadership, we the leadership at Sonship have. I mean, you know, to make the church bigger, uh, but we have to refrain from doing such practices that are unbiblical that many churches are doing. Let's read verses 60 through 65. When many of his disciples heard, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, you take offense at this? Then what if you see you want to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And this is the sad reaction of most of his disciples. It was a negative reaction, a very negative reaction. Most of the disciples left. Being called a disciple does not necessarily mean you are a true follower of Christ. The Greek word for disciple is mathetaeus and means learner, follower, or pupil, but does not imply anything about the sincerity or devotion of that disciple. Just because the Bible says they were disciples didn't mean they were true disciples. It doesn't distinguish between true and false disciples. It just says they were disciples. So they left. They were not true disciples. Jesus said in John 8.31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. They did not continue in his word, which the Bible calls them false disciples. You want to know the earmark of a true disciple? Continued obedience to the words of Christ. Jesus had said earlier in verse 38 that he came down from heaven. And now what would they make of Christ ascending to where he was before? Like Dr. D.A. Carson's comment on this, he said in his commentary on John says, now he asks what their reaction will be if they see him ascend to where he was before. The Greek preserves the condition but no conclusion. So it is possible to understand the argument in one of two ways. Number one, Jesus' ascension will make the offensive 
even greater, or Jesus' ascension will reduce or remove the offense. Some commentators believe this is uh, an implied reference to his crucifixion, which I think is a very good possibility, which led to his resurrection, his crucifixion led to his resurrection, and then his ascension. If that is the view here, then it would stand to reason that if they were great if they were greatly offended by his teaching, how much more by his execution? And you can see that when Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. That was Paul's mission. That was his, that was his goal, to cre- preach Christ and Christ crucified. But he said, in the second half of that sent- uh, verse, he says, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The cross is an offense. It's an offense to people. Whatever the case might be, Jesus left the question open-ended and how they answered would determine their destiny. Jesus went on to tell his wavering disciples some more offensive sayings. By the way, I don't think Jesus' words were offensive and hard, but I think accepting them were offensive and hard. He tells them, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This sent them into a tailspin. And he was not speaking of his own flesh, which he repeatedly spoke about in the previous verses. What he was speaking about was our flesh, our human nature, our sinful or fallen nature. The Bible repeatedly says we have a sinful nature, a human nature that will not enter the kingdom of God. So if flesh doesn't give life, what does? The Holy Spirit gives life. Only the Spirit gives life to those who believe. And the flesh, he says, counts for nothing. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, verse 5, that unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We see the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit giving life to men. Genesis 2, 7, we read that the Lord God formed man, formed a man of dust from the earth. And breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I mean it's God's spirit that gives life to humanity. But also spiritual life. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 37. Most of you know this. About Ezekiel's vision of the valley filled with dry bones. And Ezekiel the prophet is commanded to speak God's word to these bones. And when he spoke to them flesh came upon them. And he spoke to the, again to the wind, and the Spirit breathed life into them, and they came alive. Now these verses, of course, were directed um, to, at the whole house of Israel, who were exiled at that time. And the vision gave them an immediate hope to them who were longing to be restored. However, we can see people all around us, like those dry bones, dead in trespasses and sins, And when the gospel is preached and they respond through repentance and faith, we know God's Holy Spirit breathes life into them and they become spiritually alive. The flesh can't do that. The flesh can't do that. Religion in itself cannot do that. Only Christ's Holy Spirit can do that. Romans 8, 7, verse 8 says, For I know, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Paul told the Philippians in in chapter 3, verse 3, for we are of the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
the reason why Paul said that because he used to put plenty of confidence in the flesh with his upbringing, um, his 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 Pharisaical background, and his his being an Israelite and the, and the tribe of Benjamin, and so on. He put plenty of stock in that until Christ got a hold of him, and he says, "I don't put any any stock in the flesh anymore. No confidence in the flesh." Spiritual life only comes when the Holy Spirit imparts Christ's life to the believer. It only happens through the Spirit. How does the Spirit make us alive? I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, he does it through the Word of God. The Spirit comes with the Word. He uses the Word to pierce our hearts, to change the disposition of our souls. By the way, nobody, nobody gets saved apart from the Word of God, from the Gospel of Christ. Jesus' words, when they're rightly understood and absorbed, generate life. And verse 64 says, Jesus knew who would not believe and who would betray him. It didn't take Jesus by surprise. He's the omniscient God. It may take you and me by surprise, but not the all-knowing omniscient God. Was it lack of information they had? No. It was lack of faith. No matter how great the revelation and promises are, some still don't believe. God gives it. Why do people, do you ever think, why, how could they not believe such a glorious gospel? They got the greatest revelation, the Bible. And why do they not believe? Lack of faith. The words of Christ are useless unless they are mixed with faith. In verse 65, Jesus again reiterates God's sovereignty in salvation and sovereignty in their resistance. This, can we put that up there? This, what do you mean, Jesus, this? He just said the previous verse, he said, some of you don't believe. And then he goes on to say, this, he emphasizes, is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now there's that tension again between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. When he said to them, you don't believe, he put the responsibility on them. But then he puts the sovereignty of God, that salvation belongs to God alone, when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Man is responsible. Man, anyone who is lost for eternity in the fires of hell is their own responsibility. God is not responsible for that. But at, on the other hand, God is sovereign in salvation. On one hand, believers are, unbelievers are responsible for their unbelief and destiny, which is hell. On the other hand, unbelievers cannot go to Jesus because the Father did not draw him to his Son. Dr. Sproul says, he made it clear to them that they could not believe unless God took action. And Sproul goes on to say, that was the final straw for some of them. And it was. Let's read verses 66 through 71. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you was a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was, 
For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In the next section, and the third and final ap- applicable point, applicable point is, are you a true disciple? After Jesus made it clear that the feeding of the multitude miracle was about himself being the true bread from heaven, and unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, and then to top it off, he tells them, you can't come to me unless my father draws you to me, many left. That was it. They didn't understand it. They don't understand it, so they left. Jesus was well aware of what was happening there. He was well aware of it. And in spite of his foreknowledge, he knew this was going to happen. He did not change his message to accommodate their expectations. Whether it's a preacher, a teacher of the Word of God, or you sharing the gospel to someone else, don't ever change the message of God, ever. God doesn't expect you ever, and He he commands us never to change the true, unadulterated gospel of his son Christ. You'd never have to give an apology for the word of God. Because when you misinterpret the word of God and you soften it, then you're not saying what God is saying. That's a dangerous thing. Dr. Carson says he did not expect it to be otherwise and would not shape his comments to pander to their taste. F.F. Bruce, the distinguished scholar, said what they wanted he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. When you hear things from the Bible, do you reject it? Do you ignore it? Do you disobey it because you can't accept what God says? If you do, you may have left Christ. I'm not suggesting doing something for your salvation, but coming to Christ on his terms. You may have been following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. There's a distinct possibility that you're a false disciple. And I'm not judging anyone here. I'm just telling you what the word of God says. I know this is hard to hear. Preparing this message, I was challenged to examine myself. And now I'm compelled to tell you from his word, are you a true disciple? Jesus watched the crowd who took offense at his teaching dwindle down to the twelve. And he turns to them and says, do you want to go as well? However, the eleven stayed. Of course, Jesus knew the answer. However, I think for their sakes, uh, he asked them so they themselves would make a bold profession of faith. And Simon Peter, who is usually the spokesman for the twelve, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Once again, Do you want to know the marks of a true disciple? One is faith. Faith. He says, speaking for the twelve, he says, we have believed. And the second thing is faithfulness. Lord, to whom shall we go? They remained with Jesus. They continued in his word. They came to a place of faith and continued in it. They entered into knowledge and retained it. Does this speak of you? If it does, you're a true disciple of Christ. Peter and the rest of the disciples would not fully understand Christ's sayings until after the resurrection. And there's a lot of things in the Bible that we're not understanding. You know, when we talk about certain things, they're hard sayings. Nobody's denying that certain sayings in the Bible are hard. 
But do you accept them anyway, even if you don't understand them, because they're God's word? A lot of things that I struggle with, and I still don't understand it. But I say, because you said it, Lord, I believe it. And I will bank my eternity on it. Once again, I don't think Peter and the rest deny that these were hard sayings. And I think we can all say amen to that. However, they acknowledge they were Jesus' words of eternal life. In spite of Peter's confession, Christ was the one who chose them. They certainly did not choose him. He's not speaking of election of salvation but here, but the selection of the apostles. But in the midst of the twelve chosen apostles, Jesus calls one a devil, Judas. Once again, Jesus knew who would betray him. Betray him. He didn't take him by surprise. Satan was the supreme adversary of God. And God used Judas as a tool in opposing God. Yet God in his sovereign plan of redemption used both of them to fulfill his plan. Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jews who brought him to Pilate, who eventually handed him over to the Romans, who eventually crucified him. God's perfect plan of redemption. Listen to Acts 2, verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God used sinful men to crucify his son for the redemption of, of the world. No one can fathom this. I can't. Isaiah said, yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of God the Father to crush him and put him to grief. It was, a, it was God's preordained plan from all eternity that Christ would die at the hands of sinful men. And as I said in the beginning, God is sovereign not only in salvation, but also in men's resistance to his glorious gospel. Let's bring this to a conclusion. Are you consuming his flesh and blood? Are you believing and trusting him? Do you accept what Jesus says, even if they're hard sayings? Are you a true disciple of Christ? Are you continuing in faith and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Will you still follow him, no matter what he asks? And my prayer is, every one of you say with confidence, yes and amen. Lest, lest of all, I want to address our evangelism. When you share the gospel, remember a few things. God saves, you don't. I'm not saying we shouldn't, we need to proclaim the gospel, we need to proclaim the message. But remember, it's him that saves. I'm not saying we shouldn't have intellectual discussions. Isaiah 1.18 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. We can and should urge people to consider thoughtfully their position before God. So, I'm not saying don't, you know, get in, in a good conversation with people. However, we need to be careful of trying to talk people into believing the gospel because if you can talk someone into believing it, someone can talk them out of believing it. 
Let it be God's word and his spirit using your mouth and your personality that will bring them to salvation. Remember, God is sovereign in salvation and even those who resist the gospel. And if you have eaten his flesh and if you drank his blood, if you're accepting his word, and you are, then you are a true disciple. It's because, and, be, and if you're a true disciple, it's because of God's sovereign act of redeeming you. Let me close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. Amen. Father, we thank you for salvation your idea, not man's, your idea. We sitting here tonight, Lord, know we don't deserve anything but your wrath. But in your infinite divine wisdom and mercy, you chose us from before the foundations of the world. Why? I don't know why. I was as sinful as anyone is sinful. Yet you pulled me out of the muck and the mire put me on in heavenly places. You put me on the rock and that rock is Christ. God, I pray and I really plead with you, God, if someone doesn't know you here tonight, that they would hear the words that were spoken tonight through your glorious gospel and come to faith in Christ. That you would draw them to your son, Lord, as only you can do, Lord. I can't draw them. I can only proclaim the message, God, whether you use it or not, that's your business and you will use it. But only you can draw them to the Father and save them. So we thank you, Lord. And help us, God, to see people that are lost and dying to go and tell this glorious gospel to the lost and dying world in Christ's precious name.